Toronto FC, a team with a new direction after an off-season makeover. It's an all-Canadian affair. Matt working against Morgan. Puts it across the mile. Yes! Marco DeMaio! That's what we expected from him! To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I wanna spend some time with you just the two of us. And welcome to another edition of the Two Solitudes Podcast. I'm Dwayne Rollins along with Kevin Laramay. Uh, an exciting week of MLS action to break down here with uh, Toronto FC on top of the league, sort of. I yeah, mean, just missing a couple of goals, but yeah, you are on top of the league. And for all the Montreal listeners, we're not dead last. We actually scored. We're not like DC. We actually have goals. There you go. And uh, Vancouver's in there as well. They're 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 near the top of the West, undefeated at this point, too. Two draws. Um, I think a lot of Whitecaps fans are probably uh, not excited about the last two weeks, but the yeah. bottom line is is there are results there, and those results matter as you edge those points up to get to that magic 45, 50-point level that you need to make the playoffs because MLS is a playoff league, as we all know, and all you got to do is get in there, and anything can happen from there. But uh, before we talk about MLS, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, CONCACAF Champions League, which uh, wrapped up this week as well, uh, about a week ago now. Uh, th- those games are taking place. MLS had three teams in that uh, quarterfinal stage, and in the semifinals, they have... Zero. Zero. Yeah. And uh, that's something that I actually predicted uh, heading into those second leg games, and uh, I wasn't... Uh, not that I was cheering against the MLS teams, but uh, I think that on some levels it's uh, it's good to be reminded of where the standing is. Uh, Kevin, um, did did you have any hope heading into the uh, to the second legs that any of the three MLS teams might be able to pull it off? None whatsoever. Uh, you, they need to score at home, especially in the two home and away series. When you're at home in either US or Canada, you need to put a couple goals in two, three, four, the most as you can. You need to actually. Do the same thing as those South American or more Central American team does is create a hostile environment. Really use that home advantage. Uh, bad pitch usually if you get play on the worst turf you can find in your county, whatever. Trying to use all the advantage you can to beat those Central and Mexican team. Well, it did not happen. It was one nothing, one nothing, and one one. And we all saw what happened in Mexico. Nothing good. Nothing good at all. They all got destroyed. Yeah, well, with the exception of San Jose, which was the surprise team there, um, San Jose played a, a very frustrating style to the Mexicans. Uh, they were they were widely criticized after the fact, uh, the typical not playing real football kind of stuff that comes out. Uh, um, you know, I, I I have an issue with that sometimes as real football, just because people prefer to watch possession doesn't mean that that makes it any less legitimate when you play a more direct style. Uh, and it certainly did work for the most parts for San Jose, who's the team going into the leg that I think everyone assumed had the worst chance of advancing and ended up becoming becoming the closest. Uh, yeah, penalties. It, uh, they needed penalty and basically Toluca 5 and 4 for their quick and penalties, and Toluca advanced on a missed PK. But John Bush started off well in PK, went to six shooters. He stopped the first one, so did Toluca. But it uh, the Mexican experience in penalties prevailed in that game. 
Yeah, it, well, it should be, you know, if anyone's listening from San Jose, we should make a note that the, it did appear that San Jose got a bit robbed in the extra time with a, with a goal that probably should have counted that was called offside. But, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in the cliche that, that it all works out over the course of a 90-minute or 120-minute, in this case, game, uh, that uh, those missed calls will, will even themselves out. But uh, San Jose was holding on. Um, I think that's in, in some ways, and uh, we got to give credit to Mark Watson, the Canadian coach, to, to and uh, Nick Dasovic as well. The Canadians involved in that uh, technical side for for being smart enough to go down there and, and realize what the strengths and weaknesses were. I think that if you look at LA and and Kansas City, the other two games, they they maybe were guilty of uh, believing their hype a little bit and thinking they could play with the Mexicans and having it handed to them. Um, L.A. came back in the second half based on on Robbie Keane, uh, his strength, his, his amazing finishing ability. He is, um, I think, along with uh, Jermaine Defoe now, the uh, one-two uh, most dangerous strikers in this league. And uh, he showed his his value in, in getting L.A. back in that in that tie. But uh, the way that uh, the way that Tijuana came out of, uh, out, they just showed them. I mean, it, it, that's what the Mexican teams do. They they manage those ties in a way that the MLS teams just can't because of their depth of squad. Um, I was looking at the Toluca lineup uh, in the San Jose. A lot of people were saying, oh, you know, not a bad effort, blah, blah, blah. And I went through it. I just sort of, as I've done in past years, looked to see how many of the starters that they used in, in the United States were were guys that would be regularly used in the Mexican League. And what I found was that, that of the 11 starters, uh, four of them would be considered either occasional starters or or regular starters and, and really only one of them the goalkeeper was a regular starter the other three yeah. that i considered to be starters were guys that had like four or five appearances as starters <laughs> this year and then the rest of the lineup were guys that would, would maybe one appearance or whatever i mean they're legitimately using a full squad rotation in the united states with the with the belief that they can they can hold it within they, they don't mind losing by a goal they'd rather come in with a draw yeah. but uh but they don't mind losing for a goal because they believe that they can put four or five behind the americans when they get back down into the into mexico i've you know you've seen it in montreal oh yeah uh i've seen it in toronto same team since laguna yeah. um and uh they, they just do it they just have that gear that the mls teams can't match and it's because uh, you know and this is not something that this is not a new point this has been made several different places now. If you look at maybe the one through eight player on any MLS roster, they can compete. You yeah, look at the, right, yeah. the nine through 20 roster, they can't. And over the course of, of two games, that, that comes out and bites you in the butt. As, uh, yeah. And the MLS seems to be like stuck in the middle of that competition where you get the top-tier Mexican clubs dominating all the time. Then you get the bottom, like, second-tier second clubs almost where, like, the... Uh, what's the word? Uh, the Joe Public teams or the Real Esteli, those clubs from Guatemala or from Costa Rica that are not that great. Some of them are pretty good, but some of them clubs are really like they play on basically like a baseball pitch down there with bumpy everything. And it's very di big disparity in that league and that CONCACAF Champions League or whatever you want to call that championship or that cup. It's so hard for the the MLS team to prepare for those teams because you play against those bad teams and you're like, oh, we're good, we'll be able to make it. And then you get reality bring back to you from the, those Mexican teams who are so much dominating. And, and like you were saying, in Tijuana, players like Hercules Gomez only came in as a sub in like the 70-something minutes in both games. And yeah. He could probably be a starter and a starting an all-star in MLS. Her, her, Hercules is a, is a DP at MLS. <laughs> he's yeah. probably a Marisa Du kind of uh, level DP. I mean, I don't think he's a 
he's a plus million dollar player. He's not a Jermaine Defoe. He's not a Michael Bradley, but he's he's definitely going to be in that like five hundred to a million dollar range if he comes back to MLS, which is why he's down there because you have to sort of value whether or not you want a player of that statue. Um, you know, as you said, yeah, I remember in the the twenty twelve uh, Concacaf Champions League uh, group stages where where Toronto was involved in absurdly enough as the year that they started zero nine and won the Canadian Championship, which remains the most hilarious thing I've ever. Yeah, you know, I'm still I'm still looking for anyone. To, to dare find me another team in the world that has ever qualified for a Champions League without a win in league play, but uh, other United than... were pretty close last year. They were close, but they did have a win. TFC yeah. had to be one of the worst teams. Anyway, but there was a t- the El Salvador team, and off the top of my head, I can't remember the name of the team, but they were just horrific. They look like a team, and I, I don't even mean this hyperbole. I, I play in a league involved with TFC supporters. I swear to God, if I took the best players from that league, they could have been somewhat competitive with that team that was on the field that day playing <laughs> TFC, who beat them 5-1 or some damn thing. It'd be field. worst game I've ever seen, and that's just the reality of this competition. But, you know, it. I, I, that said... A lot of people look down, you know, there's kind of two minds with the CCL. There's people that, that believe that it's the be-all, end-all. And I see that in Toronto here. People that argue that it's more important than the league, which is bloody absurd. But um, there's, Say, you know, Same in Montreal. We're like, oh, we have to go to the FIFA World Cup of Clubs. Really? Just so you can get like 10 to 0 against Barcelona in a weird stadium in like Marrakesh? Yeah, that no <laughs> one's watching anyway. Exactly. Them. But, <laughs> yeah, because you're watching that competition now, guys. <laughs> Yeah, you're really going to pay attention. It's going to really make it to the next level. But there are people that do believe that are sort of a little more saner in their opinion of the CCL that do believe that it does tie directly into credibility for MLS. And I think there's some validity to that. I think that if MLS makes these claims about being one of the best leagues in the world by 2026, the first step is being the best team in, or the best league in CONCACAF. And they're clearly not that yet. Um, I heard Garth Ledger with the Salt Lake City uh, GM talk on a podcast earlier this week where he said that very thing. He said... He said, I don't really care about, about where we measure up in the world, but what I do care about is where we measure up in our region. And we're, we're clearly, you can't, when you lose 20 straight games against these teams, you cannot make the argument that we're better. Um, we have to catch up to them first. So that's, that's you know, got to be a value in that. And that's kind of where I come down on this. And I think maybe, you know, we'll, we'll leave it at this, is that... MLS talks a lot and leading to these games. And one of the reasons I was so, if anyone read me on Twitter, they know that I was pretty aggressive about putting this opinion out there is that, that you can't delude yourself into thinking that these things that were anywhere close to the Mexican teams now yet. And a lot of people did seem to think that they seemed to truly believe that, that they actually, that the MLS teams actually were closer to par and that one of these teams is going to break through and win the CCL. I heard like uh, in the league podcast, I'm talking about that and with the straight face that this is the MLS teams are competing to win this thing. No, they're not. They're, they're nowhere close to it yet. I mean, you look at the, the one MLS team that's made the final, Salt Lake, they didn't play a Mexican team until they made the final and they lost that game. Um, when Toronto made the semifinals, they played L.A. in the in the quarters. That's generally what happens in this competition. If an MLS team goes deep, they have had a pathway that has avoided the Mexican teams up until the very end. Well, let's say and, from Montreal, if you remember in 09, when Montreal made it to, up to the quarterfinals against Santos Laguna, before that, we only played either Guatemalan, Honduran, or Costa Rican teams. There was no Mexican team before Santos, and same thing happened. We got Santos in, uh, in Mexico. Yeah. So to me, the, the little kick in the pants is a reminder, as this league likes to talk the big talk about about how good it is. And we all look at this. I don't mean this is dismissive of MLS. Clearly, I, I support MLS and want to see it succeed and enjoy watching it, enjoy it on its own merit right now. But 
But if they want to talk the talk and talk the talk about where they stand in the world, they have to critically evaluate where they stand in the world. And this competition offers an opportunity to do that. And if you sit back there and make excuses for these these results, then you're doing no one. You're not doing anyone a favor. Like it's the league has to realize. And I think that you know, in fairness, I'm referring to fan opinion, but and, and journalist opinion as opposed to league opinion here. And I I would think having listened to a couple uh, league positions over the last week that the league does understand that it's a ways behind but yeah. if you want to catch up to this if you want this competition to truly matter if you want your fans to buy in in big numbers which they do then you need to take it a little more seriously and the way you take it a little more seriously is to address the shortcomings of your league which allows you to lose these games and uh fortunately we have a cba uh, up at the end of this year which will offer mls and its players the opportunity to close that gap a little bit more moving forward and there's we'll a there's just one question I'm asking myself, Dwayne, and I'm going to ask you. Is the salary cap of the Major League Soccer impeding the teams to do well in CONCACAF? Of course it is. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's delusional to suggest otherwise. When you have a, a $3.1 million salary cap, or 3.09, as it is rounded down, um, then obviously you can't have the same level of depth as those Mexican teams. I don't think that, you know, what I've heard and what I've heard from the league's office is that they're not they're being very careful in how they say this because they have a negotiations to go through and they don't want to reveal too much, but there has to be an increase in the cap to some level, to some significant level. If there's going to be a massive improvement on that level, they don't believe at the league level that they need to match the Mexican teams across the board on salaries, mm-hmm. um, which is all fine and dandy. But if you really or truly want to be a world league one day, you're going to have to, but right now, fine. But they do need to increase it. They need to increase it at least at least to five million. I would say that would be a good start. That would allow them to build that sort of nine through sixteen kind of level players. You'd be able to pay them in the hundreds of thousands instead of forty to fifty thousand, and you might be able to to compete a little bit better. But until that happens, and uh, I, I think you have to add another DP slot as well, and yeah, you have well. to have another impact player per team. Um, to have a real chance to have teams that are, are top-heavy enough. That's the other thing about the MLS teams is the way the league's structured to where it, it uh, for I use the word forced parity, but the way it encourages parity amongst its teams, um, the, you really can't create super teams. And until you create a super team, if you took the MLS All-Stars and made them a club team, I think that they could compete for a CCL championship. The, okay. the best 20 MLS players, I think, would make one very good team. Um, even if you took the best 40 players and, and spread them over three teams or something like that instead of the way they are spread over 19 teams right now, I think you'd have a chance to have a team that would be competitive. So there's lots of different structural reasons why they're not going to compete in this league. And maybe it doesn't matter to them. I don't know. But if it doesn't matter, then then stop deluding yourself and stop trying to pretend it does. <laughs> Absolutely. And because we can't compete with the salary cap, not salary cap, but just basically between 15 and 30 millions, those uh, Mexican team usually have in salaries and we can't compete with a 3.09 like you're saying yeah maybe you, you know just ballpark and then we'll end it with this you, you make the salary cap five million um and you add a fourth dp slot per team then maybe you might find a team in la might be able to jump up and, and compete um in, in any given year you know it'd still probably be an upset but they might be closer so that they could pull it off in the end and, you know then i guess the question comes down to, to whether it matters or not and that's a whole other debate for a whole other day We'll uh, continue to cover the the CCL, even though the MLS teams are out. We're, we're going to bring someone on uh, the, during the semifinals that 
that can talk with a little more expertise about the teams that are available because it is our region. I think it is an important tournament to follow through to the end. So we'll continue to follow it moving forward, uh, even though the MLS teams are out. But uh, we're going to stop talking about it today, and we're going to move forward, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, the Canadian under-17 women uh, who have qualified for a quarterfinal, and uh, we're going to talk about a little bit about uh, Joshua Green and the U.S. national team and what that might mean uh, from a Canadian perspective as well uh, right after this break. You're listening to the Two Solitudes MLS Podcast with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Larry. You can reach the two guys on Twitter at Two Solitudes Pod. Email Two Solitudes Podcast at gmail.com or go like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Two Solitudes MLS Podcast. Now back to the show. And we're back. And uh, as I said, going into the break, we're... uh, Going to move this towards more Canada discussion, uh, Canada and U.S. national team. I know we have a lot of American listeners out there. We're not American. We're not going to pretend to be American, but we do have, um, I think, uh, an informed outsider opinion of the of the U.S. Uh, news, and we'll, we'll continue to bring that on two solitudes. Uh, but we're going to start with uh, with the girls, uh, the, the the teenage girls, the U seventeen uh, Canadian women. They uh, they managed to to get to the quarterfinals for the third time in history. Uh, they they uh, play uh, Venezuela on Thursday night. You can watch that on Sportsnet World here in Canada. Um, you know that it's not a competition that a lot of people pay attention to. And and you, but this, if you're going to tune in, you might as well start tuning in now. They're <laughs> they're two wins away from making to a final, so uh, you might as well watch there. Uh, yeah, I, Kevin, I, I don't know if you've had any chance to watch this or not, but. Uh, I was surprised that Canada had beat Ghana 2-1 to make it to the quarterfinals. And I was not aware that our U-17 women's were that good. And it's pretty, pretty interesting coming into the U-20 World Cup this summer. Yeah, what the U-20s, or the U-17s, they have a a girl, uh, Joshua, Joshua, that's a word I just made up, Jess, Jessica uh, Fleming, um, who is, uh, Jess Fleming is is considered to be one of the best uh, teenage girl soccer players in the world. Um, this point blank. And uh, I remember I was getting text messages from people that I trust during the CONCACAF qualifiers that were saying, this Fleming girl is for real. Uh, This is a phenomenon. You have an incredible talent on your hand here. And these were coming from American observers, from non-Canadian observers. And uh, I've talked a lot about Jessica Fleming um, outside of this podcast in in the lead up to this. And and she certainly hasn't disappointed so far. Uh, There was a big feature on her on FIFA.com last week. Uh, This is a player that... uh, I think that most Canadians are going to know the name of, and she's probably, even though she's only, um, she's only sixteen. She's turning sixteen this year. Uh, she's going to be on the U twenty roster for sure. Uh, I suspect that as a seventeen year old, she's going to be on the World Cup roster, and oh, that's wow. that's really a phenomenal talent thing. And then there's there is some talent coming through in the Canadian women's side at the very young ages. The U seventeen team is. To me, going into this tournament, had the best opportunity to to compete to to do something special. Um, and by something special, I don't mean make a quarterfinals. I mean make a finals and compete for for a championship. Uh, of all of the the things, I, I as I've I've been very candid about my belief in in the uh, possibility of the of the senior women winning the World Cup is, is next to nothing. Um, I know that they're gonna, they're going to sell that slightly different heading into 2015, and I don't want to be dismissive of uh, of that. But uh, but uh, 
the, the chances are very slim. And it's the reason the chances are very slim is because there's no middle generation. You have the year 2002 uh, Golden Girls uh, that lost to the lost to the Americans in the final of the then U19 World Championships in in uh, Edmonton. Um, then you have this this new generation. Your um, your uh, Buchanan's, your Flemings. Uh, these these young girls that are teenagers that uh, that have come up since 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 Herman came in and since there was more of an attention and a development system put in place for a more technical player, uh, they're pretty good and look like they might might provide Canada with some stuff uh, moving forward. But that's, they're teenagers. That's one question I want to ask you, Dwayne, about the U seventeen. You watched them play. We talked on earlier podcasts how Canada used to play more of a athletic type of soccer and rely on sheer fitness of their players. Is it different? Are we going more of a tactical and technical side with U17? Yeah, Ben Priestman has been brought in to, to run the sort of technical development level at the for girls at the teenage level. And uh, the focus has been more on, a, on developing a technical player. And that's the thing about Jessica Fleming is that she, although she is a pretty big girl, a physical athletic girl for her age, um, she still is more of a technical player than she is a physical player. And, and I think that that's the key for, for any North American moving forward. You can't ignore the fact that physically uh, females in North America are generally stronger than they are in other parts of the world. And that has a lot to do with nutrition and with just uh, culture and everything else. So that's an advantage that, that North American female athletes have. And you can't ignore that. You, you wouldn't want to completely forget about that. But you want to counter that with, with, with a tactical skill as well. And, and I think Jessica Fleming... Um, is a player, uh, not to belabor her alone, but she is the one that stands out more than any other, any other um, is the player that both accommodates both sides of that game. And, and because of that, will be, be a player that I think at the end of the day, at the end of her career, barring some kind of injury, and we have to be careful about that's when, this when we're talking about teenagers because we saw it with Carl Lang years ago. Um, barring an injury, I think Jessica Fleming has the potential to be uh, the best Canadian female player that, that's ever played. And that includes Christine Sinclair. She won't have as many goals as Christine Sinclair because Sinclair uh, grew up playing the game and in, in an era when, you know, 11 nothing score lines were common. <laughs> and that's not going to happen in the women's game anymore. Uh, so those, those goal scoring totals are going to remain for a long time. But, uh, but you are going to see a player in Fleming that, that's going to be the first legitimate probably Canadian player of either gender to be considered the, the world's best. And that's not, I, I made the argument on Twitter that, that pound for pound in contact, she, she has the chance to be the best Canadian player of either gender or either gender that ever existed. <laughs> a lot of people kind of had trouble with that concept of in context. And were arguing with me that, you know, that Owen Hargraves was a better player. Well, clearly if they, you two of them were to face off that Owen Hargraves would have been a better player, but However, Jessica Fleming has the potential to be the best female player in the world, and Owen Hargraves was nowhere ever close to be the best male player of the in the world, right? So exactly, well remembered that he actually uh, not defected, but yeah, he played for England after too, right? Yeah, well, you know, the, we'll talk about that in a minute. That that kind of, I and maybe that's a good segue in, and, yeah. and I'll just remind people that 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 game is on Sportsnet World um, on um, on Thursday night. I believe it's at ten o'clock. On Sedenta Sports. Sorry. Yes. Sportsnet World uh, channel uh, channel fourteen twenty on your bell uh, yes. bell here in Toronto. Um, I don't know what it is on Rogers anymore four ninety two or something. Anyway, we're um, how to get on that. Anyway, so we'll segue into that. The the U.S. Uh, there's a, the big topic in any of the American podcasts this week is, is Joshua Green, which is a both um, 
it's hilarious on some levels as a, as a neutral observer because this is a guy who plays for Bayern Munich. He, of course, he had options to play for the German team and chose to play for play for the United States. A lot of people believe that the reason he chose to play for the United States is because because uh, Klinsmann on the World Cup roster as their as their you know twenty fourth player this year. Yeah. They'll get to go to the World Cup and uh, as a, as a kid. And um, you know you can question whether or not that's a good thing or not. And that's not really the place of this. I, I think it's kind of a little cheesy. I think there's better Americans in, in MLS that you could choose from to to take a spot rather than give it to the kid. But the Americans will will argue back that uh, if this is a securing a talent that's a generational talent, then then so be it. Uh, the question, is he that good? First of all, is he that good? Because he's not starting for Bayern. And he would not have played for Germany anyways if he would have went for the Germany national team. So is he worth the hype? I don't think so, but uh, I'm not an American. But <laughs> I, I, I'll say this, and, and this is how we'll segue it into the Canadian side of it. If, if this was a player that that was that Canada secured the talent so, or the, the secured his playing of, mm-hmm. uh, we'd be very excited as well. Because he is playing for Bayern Munich, and that is a significant thing. And this is a player that has a significant potential. But to put the amount of hype on it, I think illustrates a lot of the, the insecurities that we have in North America and around our, our the game, around the development system in this game. That obviously if this player is playing there, he's better than the players that play here. And I think this is my fear um, as a neutral observer of the American national team, is that they look at players like this and that it sort of makes them... It, it it's just a further illustration, and it's hard to articulate this exactly. But it's it just further pushes them away from the from understanding the need to take care of, take care of their own backyard first, yeah. and not to try and play these home run games. And this is how I'll segue it into Canada. It's, the, it's it's like taking the high road. I'm sorry to cut you off. It's it's like literally taking the high road, dropping a development, trying to save money there, and just trying to sign them when they're already developed. Yeah. And in Canada, I heard this argument uh, after the disaster of the World Cup qualifying, which, which was really the disaster of one game. But I digress because they were, you know, a win away; they were a draw away from qualifying. But at any rate, um, they there was this idea that we should all oh, we got to go out and we got to find these these guys that have like vague connections, and we got to patriate them and make them Canadian and and forget about that. No, you, you can't think that way. If there's a player that legitimately immigrates to Canada and legitimately wants to become a Canadian and legitimately is a Canadian national team quality player, then sure, you bring them in. We're a country of immigrants. I have nothing against that. But to actively use that as a strategy to make the Canadian national team stronger is absurd, and it really ignores the problem. I would rather lose with these kids like they're doing right now with, with the Canadian national team, then go search in the world for, for whatever the Canadian equivalent of, of a Joshua Green is. Um, there isn't a Canadian equivalent of Joshua Green, and he's a bad example in many ways because he's at a higher level. But the, the same level, the same thing applies. And if you extend it up to the United States, they're obviously at a different level of development than Canada right now, and that goes without saying. Um, but I still think it's, it's harmful in the long run to, to continue to like look at players like that. Um, if Joshua Green truly were interested in becoming a U.S. player, I, to me, he, you would have let him go through the process of, of qualifying himself rather than recruiting him in the way that they did. I just don't think he's worth that attention. It sends a really bad message to the rest of those U.S. pool players that have really battled for three years. And Especially one of those MLS guys that are really like the Wandos and uh, Mike McGee were on the cusp of making that U.S. men's national team. Yeah, and one of those guys... Uh, one of those guys is going to lose their spot because if they, in fact, do give it to Green, 
um, as a promise to keep him for 2018. And I don't know if that's a good message. I don't know if that sends the right message to to young Canadian or young American players that that are potentially going into American academies. They're going to say, "Oh, I can't. You know, no one's going to look at me. No one's going to take me seriously, even my own country, if I stay in MLS." And it just it sends a lot of mixed messages. Um, you know, the U.S. They're going to a World Cup, and they and that's a great thing, and that's an exciting thing for their fan base and for their for their soccer community. But at the same time, they they're still a long way from winning a World Cup. And and if you're if you're a U.S. if I'm American, that's what I'm thinking right now. I'm not thinking about making World Cups anymore. They do that consistently. I'm thinking about how I can win a World Cup. And I think that that looking at guys like this, I don't know. To me, he's one player. To me, his impact is not going to be anywhere near the level that they're suggesting and to me the damage it does the damage it does in terms of optics and and the lesson it tells other uh, other young americans is is more damaging than the potential benefit they'll get from certainly from they'll get from him in 2014 and and perhaps even in 2018 which is far too much in the in the future for us to predict what kind of player he's going to be then um, oh i i agree with you 100% especially, especially with the the mentality of the players that are coming from another academy like the Joshua Green, they're coming to the United States basically with the mentality of, well, I'm maybe not good enough to play for Germany, but I can play for the U.S., so that's a good second option. What I'm thinking is you should be proud to wear those colors to start with, and that should be the fuel that motivates you to play on the international level. That's what we see with those big countries. Have you ever heard about a Italian Italian national Playing, uh, oh, I don't want to play for Italy. I'm not good enough. You rarely see that. So those mentalities are the one that we should sign. And yeah. that's a good segue probably for the junior holdouts of this world who done not even sure if they want to play for Jamaica or for Canada. Depend because both teams are not that great. Well, you know what? You shouldn't play for neither then. Yeah, well, and, and junior's about, you know, I'm about done with junior. I've been for a while. Yeah, um, same, I, same here. You can probably tell. But I'm saying like, you know what? Don't play international then. Stay with your club and play for them. I don't mind. Yeah, secure that spot in QPR. Um, <laughs> yeah, for, for those that aren't listening, yeah, Junior Hallett is a player that, that is eligible to play for Canada and Jamaica that, that refused to – basically he was trying to play, play it both ways in that – this is my theory anyway, and I don't think it's that far-fetched that in the semifinal round he was – he was kind of waiting to see, and then when Jamaica made the hex, he kind of how poorly they started. Had they started a little bit better and had a chance to qualify for the World Cup, I think Junior would have discovered his Jamaican roots. But uh, as it stands now, I, I you know, I, I do actually think that they, the Canadian program has moved on from even contacting him anymore, and I, I, I support that. Um, if you're not really secure, if you don't want to wear, wear the jersey, you don't want to represent the country internationally, then, hey, that's I can't force you. Um no one can force you. The Canadian Federation can't force you. So screw you. Uh, exactly. Enjoy your club career. I'm gonna follow you peripherally, if at all. And uh, to me, you're losing opportunity. But that's just me. Um, Absolutely. Uh, that's where. You, that's when you realize that some of the players are there for the paycheck, and some of them are there for what we would be there for: for passion and for pleasure as well. Yes, and passion and pleasure is what you will see Thursday night on Sportsnet World as the young Canadian teenage girls attempt to make the semifinal of the U-17 World Cup. So tune in and uh, get your inner hoser on and, and cheer those girls on because they, they deserve it and they are playing for the right reasons. And on that note, uh, we'll segue out and we'll wrap it up with our uh, with our MLS Canadian MLS in review uh, portion of the show. That was a great segue, Dwayne. But anyway, we'll wrap it up after this and we'll be right back. 
you like the Two Solitudes MLS podcast? Well, take a second and go on iTunes, rate, review our show. We would really appreciate it. And who knows, you might win a prize for the best review. Now back to Dwayne and Kevin. And we're back for the final segment. The Canadian MLS Review, uh, which yes. is what I was trying to spit out before the break, but uh, it's, it's early and I have a bit of a cold, so I apologize for you. Do, do we have to, Dwayne? Do we have yeah. to? Can we do just do like a rest of Canada review? No, I think <laughs> we need to. Uh, I think we need to focus on all of Canada. My Canada includes Quebec. I know mine too. <laughs> so there you go. Um, well, how about we start uh, briefly with uh, with the Whitecaps game? Just because of timing this week, it was a little harder to really absorb the Whitecaps game, and I do apologize for that. We'll we'll make sure we get another Whitecaps guest on here soon to talk with more expertise. But uh, I, as I said before, I think that. Um, the important thing for Whitecaps fans to to really hold on to is that they have five points on the year, and uh, that's significant and that's worthwhile. And I, you know, the, the scoring um, that's kind of a, a bit of a question right now that they could only score one goal against ten man Chivas and and not at all against New England. But uh, two road games and uh, two points uh, can't be can't be too upset about that, can you? No, if you would have asked the uh, Southsiders or any Vancouver supporters at the beginning of the season if they would have been happy with five points after three games, they would have been pretty happy about it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, New England's a funny little uh, funny little story early on, and, and I'm not all that surprised that they've taken a step back. This is a team that lost their one of their best scorer, yeah. uh, had their uh, their best defender having a bit of a, a pout fast, although if you looked at his pure numbers, he wasn't playing that poorly. <laughs> Um, Gonzalez, uh, the uh, MLS Defender of the Year last year, of course, uh, uh, he got the clean sheet uh, for their home opener, but they uh, they haven't scored yet, the, the Revolution. Uh, interesting stat came out this week. There's only been one team in MLS history that's uh, that's made the playoffs after starting the first three games of the season without scoring. That was uh, last year's Chicago Fire. So uh, uh, New England could be in some trouble. Um, oh, I'm, I'm, I know. I was expecting a lot more from Kellen Rowe and Diego Fagundes. Maybe the sophomore slump is coming for Fagundes. I don't know. He had a very good season last year, but this season he doesn't seem to be able to perform. Seems like there's jitters. Nobody can finish on that team. Yeah, my feeling on New England, I ended up actually picking him in the playoffs when I made my predictions, but I kind of regret doing that because in the back of my mind I had all these doubts about them heading in, Mm -hmm. um, which is all hindsight now, I suppose. But uh, they have the possibility, the potential of being maybe not quite as bad as D.C. last year, the slip back that they had from their from the year previous, but they, to me, they always had the, the earmark of a team that, that could slip back quite a bit. Um, and, and that's, I still maintain that. Obviously it's a lot easier to maintain it now that they've started the way they have, but, uh, got their first point. So that's, that's something to build off of. Uh, and you know, uh, when we do our, uh, our new England, uh, MLS podcast, uh, review show after this, we'll talk a lot more about it, but, but on that note, I think maybe we'll uh, we'll move forward and uh, we'll talk about uh, let's talk about the impact. Yes. Well, we're not last. Where the impact is not last in the East. They're ninth, just because the only other team that haven't scored so far, DC United, is dead last in the league, especially in the East. Montreal Impact 0 and three, lost two nothing at home at the Big O after a cancellation day, by the way, which was. Due to the weather in Montreal, yes, it's still snowing. And yes, the roof is not strong enough to guarantee the safety of people under it when there's snow. So they had to cancel for 24 hours. And you can tell that the players came out flat. Just as flat as the pitch on the, on the big surface. 
2-0. Seattle was dominating. Could have been 3-4-0 if it wasn't for the save of the year of Troy Perkins on Obafemi Martin's shot. It was a great save, but Martin's had uh, the winning hand later on when he scored a beautiful header. But damn, 2-0. Montreal couldn't score again. Nobody could have. It did look like they were digressing. Tactically and technically, it wasn't there. Fitness-wise, they don't seem to be there either. either. And I was optimistic after the first two games because there were upgrades and it was clear what was needed to be done on the pitch. But this game, the way they just came out with Warner again, trying to put him on as a as a wing, he's not a wing. He's a defensive midfielder at best. He should be on the bench, in my opinion. But yeah, hopefully... The rumors are true that the Impact have signed Ignacio Piatti from the Argentinian League. Hopefully that's true. He will be a third DP coming in June. If it's true, it might help because he's a winger. And he could actually probably play well with Felipe. Same type of player. And especially with Bernadello. Because that's what's missing. The link between Bernadello and Bernier, it's like they're impeding on each other. Instead of helping each other, it's like the exact same player trying to play one next to each other. You can't have that. So decide either you put Bernier forward... Or you changed the way you set up, and I'm really disappointed in Frank Lopez, to be honest. Yeah, well, yeah he was always going to be a kid. He was an odd choice. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, especially with the philosophy of the impact, which which do, you know, and you could argue whether this is the right philosophy or not. And I, I my opinion, that's been stated in the past, so I won't belabor it now. But but the impact, Joyce Puto kind of believes that uh, that they need to take a different attack than other other MLS franchises, that they don't necessarily want to go down the route of of being a NCAA factor, like place for NCAA players to come and play and be just a typical MLS franchise, that they want to have a different kind of more international feel to them, which reflects, uh, you know, Montreal, which reflects, uh, you know, a French reality and, and an international reality and, and an Italian reality, which which is very Montreal, right? That yeah. That's what they want them to be. And I, Klupas, I don't know necessarily if that's the right coach for that kind of team. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, they're trying to play halfway. Um, I think that they recognized uh, last year that, that, that you need to have a guy that under, that's in charge that understands the league a bit more, but I, I just don't know. It's, it was an odd choice. And, and I wonder whether um, the, the management at Montreal – sort of looked at their roster and realized that there might be a bit of a, a gap year this year, that they that they thought that they had it figured out last year, they didn't quite uh, get it done, and they realized with that age of that team that they would need to to rebuild, and thinking was that they would put a guy in charge that could, could maybe make it less damaging than it might have been otherwise. This is, I'm spitballing here, but... No, but you're probably right, and the fact that they re-signed DeVaio just for, for this year... Probably just to uh, put a damper on all the criticism, and maybe just by signing, re-signing Devayo, people are like, "Okay, we got Devayo, we got a shot." But reality, when you're actually looking at the roster, like you were saying, a lot of those players should should have moved on, and that's not being mean at all. We're still waiting to see Romero back. Maybe it's going to be Romero 2.0, like people are saying. Still doubt it. What I really people need to realize is, we have players that might be from the academy that might be better than the players we're using, and Youngster. And again, after three games this year, I thought it would have been the year that the Youngsters and the academy players would have get a shot. And after three games, he barely put Blake Smith in. And we saw what Blake Smith did when he went on the pitch this Saturday, this Sunday. He made a difference. He had an impact. He created opportunity. And if it wasn't for Stephen Fry, he would have scored. 
if it wasn't for the defender of Seattle who stopped it on the line, he would have scored. But no, seems like the veterans are getting free passes. And again, this year, like the last couple of years, the youngsters should be given more opportunity. Forget me. Tell me, what are the impact doing to make sure that their younger players are getting playing, not playing opportunities this year? They, Nothing so far. Wenger so, is literally just playing because Devayo is not there. We haven't seen haven't seen Modril. We haven't seen Eric Wimet. We haven't seen uh, Maxim So. We only saw Eric Miller, and I gotta say, he's probably going to be a contender for Rookie of the Year this year. A great, great left back who's actually doing a great job, maybe too much of an offensive job. Maybe that's the reason they put Warner on that side so he can cover him defensively. But Miller is impressing me. But the rest, we haven't seen them yet. So no players on loan, no opportunities like that? And no, not so far. We have a, we're going to have a PDL team next year in the U23. We have the Impact U23s who are playing in the region here in the United States as well, in the Pro League, in the U.S. Development Pro League, the U23s. But... They're not sending the academy players there. They're staying with the first team, and they're just on the bench. They're the players from 21 to 28th right now. And that's a shame because when the starters are not playing, even Heath Pierce, which a former U.S. men's national team player, can barely crack the lineup, and he should have started last Sunday. And I hope he starts next Saturday against uh, Philly. And that's going to be a big guy. I think next Saturday's with DeVaio back. Um, you're really going to have a, a, an opportunity to truly evaluate where the impacts stand this year. Um if DeVaio has taken a slip back, um, and, and I tweeted this out after the after the game, and uh, actually um, you can tell that Montrealers are, are getting a little frustrated because normally as a Torontonian, if I tweet anything out that's even at all negative about the impact, I get blasted. <laughs> and I did, I did get a little bit of that, but but I actually had the majority of my retweets were uh, Montrealers uh, that were retweeting it without comment, which doesn't necessarily mean they were supporting it, but usually does. Yeah, so, we're uh, jealous. Just because yeah. Defoe's doing great, and well, I hope that that triggers a, a scoring race between Defoe and Devaya. That would be great to see. Um, Sosa McGuire type race. That would be fun to see. That would be good. Yeah, we'll talk about Defoe in a bit in a minute. But yeah, just to finish that thought, I, I you know, Devaya is a remarkable player. Italians do uh, for a lot of reasons that I don't fully understand. Do tend to play older, better older. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, they, it's not rare to see an Italian, uh, uh, Dinatello, uh, he, he brings, yeah, the, these guys, the, they can play, uh, play older later, or greater, older into their 30s. And, Wait, uh, in five years, Perlo's going to come to MLS and dominate when he's going to be like 55. Yeah, yeah, you never know. See that free kick he had last week in the Europa League? Anyway. Um, exactly. The, yeah, the, the, so it, it wouldn't be stunning if DeVille could come back and, and replicate what he did last year. Maybe not. He's lost three games, so maybe not to the same level, the same totals. But but if he can, then Montreal, I think, will be fine. They they'll, they they may be struggling at that 7-6 range, but they're not going to bottom out at the bottom of the league. But there's a real potential that if he comes back and for whatever reason, if he's just lost it, and there all comes it comes a time in any athlete's age or, or career, even if they're Italian, when the, the bottom just falls out. And if that's happened, then Montreal's in a lot of trouble. Because oh. they have, it clearly, as illustrated, they have no one else who can really score for them this year. Absolutely. And imagine if he just does half of what he did. Just 10 goals instead of 20. It would make a whole lot of difference. And it would probably be the difference between, like you say, bottom of the table and contending for the playoffs. Yeah. And, and that, again, just I think maybe that might have been Montreal's strategy this year, that they felt that they... They realized that they, they they had to rebuild, and they just wanted to have a gap year where they were competitive. 
competitive and not having someone interested, but uh, to not have like a TFC like season where the the whole bottom falls out, which is, I think anyone understands and anyone's here realizes. Bloody here, but it won't be because it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Uh, the next week is a real big test for for the impact, and uh, we'll watch that game with a lot of interest. Um, but we'll move to another game that had a lot of interest. The the highest rated TSN English language broadcast for an MLS game in history this past week. Almost 400,000 people tuned in. I think it's 392,000, I believe, off the top of my head on TSN to watch. And that's this probably feels- more than every single Major League Soccer broadcast in the United States put together. Yeah, well, in terms of share, certainly. Yes. Um, and that's a different topic, but uh, if you look at the TV numbers, uh, more Canadians in percentage and context care about MLS than Americans, which is somewhat ironic. But um, here we are. The TFC, they got the 1-0 victory. Uh, they were Once again, the possession numbers were vastly uh, in, in the favor of the opponent in D.C. United's this case. Uh, Toronto had 30, 38% of the ball or something like that. Um, but the the amount of chances that Toronto created with that 38% of the ball were were phenomenal. They they completely outshot, outplayed DC in every facet, which illustrates the possession isn't always what it's uh what it's what it's uh, supposed to be. It's not always the biggest end, be all end all. Um, Toronto just I, I thought that there was you know I watched that game from two different vantage points in the weekend and it just did never looked dangerous. It never looked like TFC was in danger of um of falling behind in that game. And the, the only worry that anyone had is that uh, after Defoe missed what could have been a first, uh, first half hat trick, um, couldn't finish the, you know, at a point blank one-on-one with the goalkeeper that the, the Hamad made the save, uh, was trying to go between his legs. Oh, that, was that, a great, that was a great save though. He literally uh, clicked his heel together at the last moment just to stop that nutmeg from Defoe. But yeah. just somebody who tries a nutmeg, it's actually fun to see somebody who's that confident. You don't see that every day in MLS. No, and that's Defoe. Uh, and then there was another play where they, it was in, and it, he ended up just side-footing it off the side of the bar. Um, you know, there, there, there could have been five goals for TFC. D. Rose uh, attack at the end where he, uh, he, oh, yeah, he missed it. just couldn't quite chip the keeper. Uh, there were there were opportunities for, for goals to be scored in that game uh, beyond the one, but they did get the one. Uh, Gibraltar, uh off of the nice ball from Bradley. It was DP to DP to DP. Uh, which is exactly what uh, TFC fans were, were looking for in that game, and they got the 1-0 victory. Uh, yeah, how was Gilberto? That was one thing I want to ask you. How was his debut with Toronto FC? He uh, he had a – you've got to keep in mind his fitness. I, I had very mixed reactions from people I talked to with after the game. There were some people that thought he was kind of invisible. There were other people that were very excited by his play. I, I sort of fall in the middle of that. I think that there were flashes during the game that really illustrated just what kind of skill level he had. There was a run in the first half where – he just got moving forward, and forgive me for this comparison, but it was a, he almost seemed like a Yaya Torre when you know when Yaya Torre gets that <laughs> momentum going forward, he kind of just barrels through the, the through people because he's a big guy. I mean, Gilberto at a different level, obviously. Uh, um, I'm not comparing Gilberto's talent to Yaya Torre, <laughs> but it, at a different level within that context, had that sort of same feel when he got moving forward, when he got dribbling forward with the ball. He he just had that ability to to get moving. And there was a run in the first half where where he almost set something up that uh, that really illustrated that. And then on the goal itself as well. I mean, if you want to just talk about his skill level, the, the Bradley's ball over the top was amazing, but yeah. Gilberto 
he one touch controlled it. And there's a lot of MLS players that a ball coming over the top would not be able to control it with the same level of skill that he did. And that's every bit as key. And he got the shot off. Uh, DC probably should have cleared it a little bit better. But when it's scrambling like that and they're trying to run back, like that's that's how goals are scored in MLS. So you take advantage of of mistakes that happen, and then to have the ball get over to to Defoe, and for the most part, that's an open net, but he still has to bring it down, yep. get his uh, his positioning, and get the shot off. And he does that in a bang, bang, bang way, in a way that few could do. So Three touches, and it's a goal. And three very hard touches, like you're saying. And I have to say, I'm quite impressed. Usually when you get a DP, a striker DP, it's always missing the service. And it's the exact opposite. Defoe's getting perfect service every chance, and he's a class act. He finishes easily in... The first goal he scored for TFC with the Osorio pass was probably one of the best passes I've seen in ever. And from a Canadian, that's like probably the best move ever a Canadian player ever did in Major League Soccer. And the Gilberto, like I said, Gilberto pass was one of the same thing. And the service is there. The finish is there. Toronto's going to be scary if they continue like this. Well, this is just it. Um, Again, I don't mean to belabor this, but a lot of people question the Defoe off the top because a lot of people question things TFC does and you can understand why from an historical perspective because in the past there's no doubt about that um and and, and no one in Toronto is hiding from that but what we what people in Toronto that do want to defend the current management point out is that the current management is completely different from the people that made those errors in the past so I don't know how you can ascribe errors that happened three years ago from people that aren't there anymore when there's a completely new management structure, including the ownership. The ownership changed. Keep in mind, it was used to be the teacher's pension plan. It's now owned by Bell and Rogers. There's a different upper management. There's different middle management. There's different uh, lower management. Every level of the spectrum, the only person that is still there that predates the current bunch is Ryan Nelson. Ryan Nelson was hired just last year. So there's just you cannot say... TFC, clearly that signing is bad because, you know, Mista was a bad signing. You know, you can't because it doesn't make sense. It's not the same people make those decisions. And at any rate, when, when Defoe came in, a lot of people questioned him. But what we're seeing so early is that this is a guy that just purely finishes. And that's so rare in MLS, a guy that has that ability. And he's not going to finish every opportunity. He didn't even finish every opportunity on the weekend, but he did get one, you know. <laughs> that's all that matters. If you score a goal a game in this league, no one's ever done that. But if you were to ever do that, then this, you're talking about championship contending team here. So it's really key. Uh, you know, Toronto's weakness is clearly its depth. If they lose Defoe, then there's a big drop-off from there. Uh, Gilberto, I don't know, has the same finishing things. I, I don't know. D-Row, I think, is, is maybe going to get five, six goals this year at best. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's a big drop-off there. But if, DeVro- if Defoe stays healthy then this is a team legitimately that has an opportunity to not just make the playoffs, but to compete for the top of the Eastern Championship. And Defoe absolutely is got to be an early favorite for the Golden Boot. And if he wins the Golden Boot, then he has to be in the running for MVP. So this is obviously early days, but from what we've seen so far was just a simply nearly perfect DP, MLS DP signing. Oh, absolutely. And what about Julio Cesar? Another shout out. Toronto haven't conceded a goal yet. No, they did. One. Yeah, they did. Yeah. But, you know, and there was no chance in the goal in Seattle. Cesar, you know, the, that's a, a perfect opportunity to segue into the other thing. The other play that everyone misses, and if you look at the uh, at the stats, the who scores stats for this week, the, Toronto's best player, best ranked player this year, or this game, was Daniel Henry. <laughs> wow. So 
you have to wonder how much of the Henry's ability, and he has had a phenomenal start to the season, and he has, was pointed to by myself and by others being the key to Toronto's season this year, how much of that has to do with the confidence of having a world-class keeper behind him and the confidence of, of and the understanding of having a solid professional in Stephen Caldwell beside him. And maybe allowing, even Bradley in front of him, too, that gives and, him confidence that he, if he needs help, somebody's there in front of him. He's surrounded by guys. Like Caldwell is, is, a, is a pro. He is a, a leader. And a guy that is gets more doesn't get enough credit, but what he does is is probably the least flashy of the three players that we're talking about. You have Michael Bradley and and a much improved Rosario in front of him, just protecting it, putting less in front of them. And you have Cesar behind him, and it's going to bail you out if you make a big mistake. And Henry so far has absolutely been almost perfect. If you look at it, he's top ten in the league in clearances. He's top ten in the league in um, interceptions. And this is these are two categories that are key for defenders. And he absolutely is, is dominating in this. And it's it's because I, I and I think Caldwell's play is, is benefiting from having the athlete that is Henry beside him. So if he continues to play at that level, and I I put Cesar, which is hard to really evaluate Cesar because he hasn't really been tested a lot. There hasn't been a game where he's had to stand on his head yet. Mm-hmm. But I believe that his his stabling influence is a big key part to, to Henry's start of the year. And uh, Henry's start of the year has been key to, to Toronto getting the full six points so far. Absolutely, and it's, it's fun to see another Canadian team be able to perform, and it's going to bring a lot of, uh, maybe a, a more intense rivalry. And can you imagine if actually Toronto finishes first, and Montreal can just squeak in the playoff, and we have a home and away series, Toronto-Montreal? That's Hold what that. we need to put the rivalry up to a Habs and Leafs type level. Yeah, yeah. Make the Cascadia rivalry. Uh, well, I'm not going to say it would put it to shame. It, it would. Yeah, it, it would. would. It would equate it. It would look very much the same. The amount of numbers that would go down to those games would be would be key. You wouldn't have to worry about an international border. It would be very large. Uh, my, well, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the Montreal. Uh, well, your home game against Toronto this year, which mm-hmm. falls on uh, the August long weekend here in Ontario. So uh, there will be a big Toronto contingent down on that one. I'm pretty sure. And I don't know whether you. If there's any possibility of that game being moved inside or not, but uh, if if there is, they could be a huge number there. But Saputo is going to be filled up for sure with the amount of allotment that's there. Um, going to be fun times. I, real briefly, uh, we'll end with this. Uh, the, there was a change to the the Neutralite Canadian Championships or the Amway Canadian Championships. I never keep it straight what their sponsor <laughs> is at any time. It's just called the Voyagers Cup. It's always shady sponsors, anyways. Yeah, the the Voyagers Cup uh, moving forward they won't change this year, uh, but uh, starting next year they're going to try and move it into a summer schedule. Um, the, I believe that has to do with um, with trying to uh, get more teams involved in the early knockout stages to make it more of a true open cup. I think, don't think anyone can disagree with that. The only complaint that I had uh, about this change is that uh, it's uh, not for this year, but for the the ne- it gets a little confusing. Next year's Concacaf Champions League representative will be determined by the best bind uh, MLS record uh, for two seasons. So it's a bit confusing. There's a release out there if you want to look at it. But uh, it was but the bo- either playing twice the Voyager's Cup in six months. Yeah. The bottom line, I think, for, for people that want to look at this, and it does shut it, the NASL teams out for one for one possibility for one season to make the CCL, but the reality is they're not going to make the CCL anytime <laughs> soon. So that's that's be that's be real here, folks. Um, this is an opportunity, and a lot of people have been clamoring for uh, for more teams to be involved um, because they want it to be a true Open Cup, even though I think everyone understands that the three MLS teams are the teams that are going to win the thing every year. Uh, 
this is an opportunity to get uh, the interior league one off launches this year. There's already a Quebec uh, yeah. semi-pro league that's there uh, yeah, to that's get their, to get their champions in there involved in it in some way. Uh, you're going to need to extend the period that you can play that. So that will happen in the spring. They haven't announced that formally, but that's clearly what they're trying to do. So um, anyone that's trying to complain about this uh, because the NASL teams are being shut out for, for a year, uh, I think that the, the argument back is that it's a very short-term pain for a long-term gain of having a true Canadian Open Cup, which I think we've all hoped for for a long time. Um, and on that note, uh, Kevin, I think that uh, we'll, we'll call it the day, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next week, and we'll see whether uh, we can uh, be talking about the 3-0 and uh, the three and O TFC or the uh, maybe hopefully not the O and four impact, but uh, whatever it is, we'll be here to talk about it uh, on next week's two salt podcast. All right. Have a great talker.